Hello, all my beautiful freaks out there. My name is Stacy. I'm Coulter. And this is Any Crime at All. And no theme song. Um, so it is 2.06 in the morning. I literally just finished this podcast. Uh, this, uh, well, yeah, this podcast. The research. The research for it and all that good stuff. And we decided to do it right now because today has been a weird day. None of us fucking slept last night. For some reason. And then today was just wonky. I I don't know what's going on, Colt. I don't know. I'm I'm baked off my ass right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I am not, as I don't do that stuff, but so a funny thing happened when I was typing out my uh the research for this podcast. I put <laughs> I spelled a word wrong. Um, deleted it and then went, oh, sorry. I don't know if I was talking to the computer. I don't know. But I told Coulter about it. And what did you say? It's the most Canadian thing I've ever heard. <laughs> He's like, you're way too Canadian, mom. <laughs> I said sorry to something. I don't even know what I said sorry to. <laughs> Yourself, I guess. I guess. Or the computer. or I don't know. But yeah, so that happened. Um, so... I will say if there's any weird background noise, it's Loki. The kitty Loki. Yeah, he's he's very... He's mischievous right now. He, he, he takes out pieces of food from the food dish and then hunts it. Yep. He sure does. And even when he eats normally, he has to, like, spill it onto the ground and then eat it off the floor. Like, he's, he's a weird cat. He's definitely your cat, because you're kind of weird. Yeah, definitely. But you get it honestly from me, because I'm really weird. Yeah, you, um, you apologize to the computer. I apologize to computers, apparently, yep. Yep. Um, so, we just heard about the shootings in Chicago and Sacramento. That's horrible. The Sacramento one was outside a nightclub, but the Chicago one in particular was... Did you say that was like a 4th of July parade? Yeah, it was a 4th of July parade. Oh, that's awful. That was 6 dead, 30 injured. Yeah. That, so far. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, I guess the guy who did it was this weird white rapper named Awake the Rapper who had a bit of a following on SoundCloud. Wow. Hunter just told me, and he, uh, I looked up pictures of him. He looks disturbed, I'll say that. And uh, Hunter told me, too. Hunter's my my brother, by the way. Younger brother. Yeah. And he, he told me, uh, like, he he's depicted school shootings in his music videos and shit. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, he's like 21, this guy. That's some sick shit. Like, you, no. Yeah. No. There's a lot of um, offensive stuff that I can just be like, okay, you're doing that for shock value or something like that. But school shootings, come on. That's not cool. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so just sorry to, you know, all the families involved. Um, love, light, and healing to all of you. Um, so this week we are doing Volume 3 of Wrongful Convictions, Coulter. And it is Guy Paul Morin. See, I know the name. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. See, I didn't know too, too much about it either because it happened... In 19, the actual crime happened in 1984. I was nine years old. Um, and now you can 
that up how old I am, people. There you go. I'm, I'm an old fucking bitch. Anyway, um... You can't add up how old you are. I can't, no. No, I, I argued with him that I was 47 years old. But I'm actually only 46. <laughs> so now that we've gotten past how stupid you are... Yes. Let's get started with the podcast. Let's see if I can read. <laughs> All right, here we go. On October 3rd, 1984... Nine-year-old Christine Jessup lived in Queensville, Ontario. You ever heard of Queensville? Yeah, I know Queensville. Okay. Um, about 45 minutes north of Toronto. At this time, it was a small rural town with a population of around 90 to 95 people. If it sounded like a weird cut there, it's because we were dealing with multiple animal problems. Yeah. And uh, we had to dispose of them in the bedroom in the we put them in the bedroom <laughs> that's how we disposed of them yeah so yeah the population around then was only 90 to 95 people and what i was going to say was really i thought it was way more than that because <laughs> i've heard of it it's actually not that much bigger now really yeah they got up to 97 now yeah <laughs> a couple people had kids yeah yeah pretty much <laughs> so there was a church a cemetery a general store, uh, a park for kids, and uh, some houses. It was, it was sort of like Tyrone, where you grew up, that little village. We lived in a little village called Tyrone in Ontario. Yeah, but we had a, uh, we had a blacksmith, so we had one up on them. Well, the, black, the blacksmith was, it didn't work anymore. <laughs> the building, the last time the building was in use, I think was like, I don't know, the early 1920s. What the like fuck? What Samuel the fuck? Samuel L. McLaughlin built shit out of there. Really? Yeah, man. Well, why the fuck is it? Was it still there called the blacksmith? It's a landmark. Really? Well, Samuel L. McLaughlin. I know who Parkwood. He's the homie. Cars, GM. You know. I know who he is. So yeah, they're gonna keep shit around for him. And anyway. He, yeah. And his brother created Canada Dry. Yes, and Adelaide Avenue was named after his wife. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is all. Stuff that <laughs> to do with Oshawa. Unless you're not, unless you're not from there, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, but if you can get to Parkwood in Oshawa, beautiful, beautiful place. And incidentally, that's where X Men was filmed, um, and Billy Madison. So, by all accounts, Christine was an adventurous girl. She would often be seen playing in the cemetery behind her house, which I think is just awesome. Like that's yeah. so cool. She was very independent. Some friends even called her bossy. She loved baseball and her dolls. But her greatest love, Coulter, and we can both uh, identify with this, was animals. Oh, okay. She loved all animals. She had a pet beagle named Freckles. Aww. I love that. And a frog named Harold. <laughs> I know, isn't that just the best? Christine's parents, Bob and Janet, and her brother, Kenny, loved her very much, and she loved them. So Kenny was three or four years older than her, and he was adopted. Oh, okay. That day when Christine got off the school bus, she had a brand new recorder, the instrument, and she was super excited to learn to play it, and she couldn't wait to show her family. I remember them trying to make me learn the recorder. Yeah, I can't believe they still make you play the recorder. Like, I, I tried everything to get rid of that fucking thing. I know you did. I remember I buried it in the schoolyard. They found it. <laughs> I, 
I, I, I was so surprised that I eventually just threw it into a cornfield. <laughs> Not going to find it there, asshole. I don't want to play fucking hot cross buns anymore. <laughs> oh my god, it reminds me of Joey from Friends. Um, now, Janet and Kenny had been in Toronto that day visiting Bob, who was in jail for 18 months on a fraud charge. But Queensville was so safe. Like, nobody locked their doors. There was 95 people in the town. Everybody fucking knew everyone else, you know? Queensville was so safe that Janet didn't really worry about Christine being alone for just a little while. Uh, now, Christine had made plans to meet her friend Leslie Chipman at the local park to play at 4 p.m. However, 4 p.m. 4 came and went, and Christine didn't show up. So Leslie went home. Janet and Kenny got home. At around 4.10 p.m. Keep that time in your in your minds, okay, peoples? Janet noticed her daughter's bike laying on its side, which she never did, in the shed. The kickstand had been damaged. Then when she entered the house, Janet noticed that Christine's coat was hung on a rung that was too high for her to reach. This, yeah, that's... It's fucked up, man. Like, I, and I, when I'm thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I know I'm stoned, but mm -hmm. I'm just trying to picture the scene of where he took her. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, the kickstand's damaged. Yeah. Like, how did that happen? Exactly. Yeah. So, her school bag was on the counter, and the newspaper and the mail had been brought in. Now, I find that a bit weird, but... Nine years old in 1984, she probably had more chores than most kids do nowadays. Because, like, I know I did. I had to do dishes and sweep and mop and all that stuff when I was nine, so... I even did. Um, yeah, so all that was going down when she got home, okay? But Christine was not at home. Janet waited until 5 p.m., then she went out to look for her daughter in the park, the graveyard, the store, all the normal haunts where Christine would be, you know? She called the girl's friends, and Leslie told Janet about Christine not showing up at the park at 4 p.m. Now, Janet tried not to panic, but she always knew where the kids were. Yeah. Always. At sunset, Janet called York Regional Police. Now, missing kids were pretty common at the time, but they were usually found or came home within 48 hours. This police force was tiny. One cop for every 860 citizens. Oh my. Yeah. There was no major crimes unit, and they'd never had to deal with a child abduction or a child murder before. Any evidence there may have been at the house was ruined pretty quickly as the cops and neighbors were just trudging around. The plastic that had been on the newspaper was thrown away. And Christine's coat that was hung up too high for her to reach was literally handled by an inspector with no gloves on. Wow. Yeah. Now, this is this is stuff you learn in, like, you know, day two of fucking cop school. A command post was set up at the local fire hall, and some residents did do some searches, but they're just regular residents. They're not cops. They don't know how to actually do it. They were just, you know, searching. At least they were trying. 
So Marg Johnson, a volunteer, told the Toronto Star, quote, We are full of anxiety and concern. There was a feeling of disbelief that something like this could happen here, unquote. This was, after all, a small town where everyone knew everyone else. Now, Bob Jessup was released from jail on humanitarian grounds. His kid's missing. Yeah. And he was only in there for like, it was like a small fraud charge. It's only 18 months, you know? And he and Janet made frantic pleas through the media for their daughter's safe return. Police explained that most child abductions were perpetrated by someone that knew the child and or family. The Jessops gave names and numbers of people that were allowed to enter their house without the family being there. Heather and Calvin Hoover were amongst those names. On October 4th, the day after uh, Christine went missing, Heather went to the Jessop home to console Janet. While she was there, the police interviewed her. She explained that she was at work the day before and assumed her husband was too. Calvin Hoover was never actually questioned. One family that didn't help the Jessup search was the Morin family. Now it's spelled like Morin, but they're French. Uh, Alphonse, Ida, and their 24-year-old son, Guy Paul. They were seen as kind of like outcasts in the town because their house was a little bit run down and there was a bunch of cars in the yard that they worked on. Okay. They, you know, they probably got old cars, fixed them up, sold them. They were, the, they were the hillbillies of the town. Yeah, sort of, kind of. Yeah, so a policeman asked Alphonse if they could search his house, and he refused. And I could sort of see this because I'm picturing, like, an older French man, French-ish man, like my dad was. Yeah. And I know if a cop had to come to our house and said, hey, can we come in and search? Dad would have been like, fuck off. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Constable David Robertson had Ryder, a dog from the canine unit, and they were outside the, Mor the Morin house. Robertson let Ryder sniff one of Christine's sweaters, and the dog wandered over to a gold Honda on the Morin property. Robertson made no note of this, nor did he alert it to anyone at the time. Now, I will say right now that, yeah, he had a canine with him. He was not a canine handler. He was just a cop. Oh, okay. Okay? But, but it should be common sense, right? Like You would think. So meanwhile, on the night of October 3rd, 1984, 60 kilometers away, residents from three different homes heard a girl screaming. No one bothered to investigate. Oh, just imagining the screaming. Yeah. Her poor little girl. Yeah, I know. It's, it's hard to... It's hard to fathom it. I know. Yeah. October 5th, 1984, the cops began to realize they may have fucked up the investigation. No prints had been taken from inside the house, and they'd let everyone and their fucking uncle trudge through the place. Remember her bike and coat? Well, there was no forced entry either. The police had absolutely no leads. 140 known sex offenders in the area were questioned and all had solid alibis. Now, Yvette Devine, or Devine, the Moran's daughter had been visiting on October 3rd and she told police she saw a white car parked in the Jessup's driveway. 
When Guy Paul was questioned, he said he knew nothing about the girl's disappearance. But when the police asked him for a phone number, he refused. So I'm just thinking that, um, I know with my dad, he had gotten in trouble a lot as a kid, as a, as a younger man, I should say. And he just, he hated cops. Yeah. Didn't trust them. So I'm thinking maybe Alphonse Moran was like that. And maybe Guy Paul got it a little bit from his dad, you know, like, don't fuck with the popo. <laughs> okay, Guy Paul. <laughs> Guy Paul's guilty, right? Like. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Oh, maybe. Okay, okay. I think I know what, I think I know where we're going here. On December 31st, 1984, a man named Fred Patterson saw dogs causing a stir in some bushes on his property about 60 kilometers away from Queensville on rural, rural, I can't say that word, Road 2. Patterson and his daughter went to investigate and they found human remains. The body was that of a young girl. The torso was decomposed almost to the skeleton, but there was still flesh on her lower extremities. Her legs were spread unnaturally. Socks were still on her feet. Panties and some blue article of clothing and one running shoe were found next to the body. She would later be identified as Christine Jessup. Poor little girl. I know. So because of where the body was found, this now becomes... Durham region uh, jurisdiction, okay? I'm familiar with it. Yeah. So the head of Durham Regional Police Identification Branch, Sergeant Michael Michalowski, try to keep that name in your head, my good people, got to the scene about an hour after the remains were found. So it would have been around 2 p.m. Now, anyone who's ever seen a crime show or listened to a true crime podcast knows that preserving the scene is priority number one. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's fucking common sense for anyone, really. You'd right? think, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the good sergeant must have been sick the day they taught that. He was, however, uh, yeah, he was, however, worried about the snowstorm that was heading their way. But when a police officer suggested erecting a tarp over the body in the scene, which, I mean, yeah. Yeah. He said no and told officers to just begin searching the area. They didn't use the tried and true grid search. You know what the grid search is, Yeah, right? yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, From Dexter, I believe. Right. Michalowski just lined up some officers and told them to start searching. What the fuck is up with this? Well, he's an idiot, for one thing. This whole investigation, everyone trudging through the house and yeah. fucking... Oh, and by the way, one cop butted his cigarette out on the bottom of his shoe and just threw it into the grass around the crime scene. Yep. Yep, these guys, I tell you. Oh my God, it's so bad. <laughs> yeah. So two butts were found near the body, though. Now... The way little Christine's body was removed from the scene was questionable at best. Normally, soil samples are taken, which was done from around the body. There were soil samples taken. But the soil under the body should have been collected with the body. You dig 
underneath, yeah. right? So you're taking up a bunch of the dirt and the body. I know that from bones. Right. Uh, yeah, it should be done that way in order for the soil and everything to be analyzed for any evidence. At this scene, a piece of plywood was slid under the body and then picked up. Oh a my. piece of plywood. I just yelled that. I'm so sorry. But it's just so... Yeah. So so unprofessional. My goodness, yes. I've never said my goodness in my life. <laughs> at 8 p.m. that night, Jessup's body arrived at the coroner's office, and the first inspection of the remains was done. A single dark hair was found in the girl's necklace. It was not her own hair. She had, uh, like, strawberry blonde kind of hair. It was bagged and sent to CFS, the uh, Center of Forensic Sciences, to be analyzed. The autopsy was done on January 2nd, 1985 by Dr. John Hilsden Smith, chief pathologist of Ontario at the time. Now, at first, there were several indications of drowning, but he also found two skull fractures. She was hit twice in the head, hard, and she'd been alive when struck. He also found some nicks on the ribs uh, a few millimeters apart, and they match holes in the clothing. Several buttons were missing from Jessup's clothes, but Michalowski insisted they found them all, when in reality, they only found two. Okay. Eventually, it was ruled that cause of death was the stabbing, and she had been sexually assaulted as semen was found in her underwear. How old was this girl again? Nine. Oh my God. I know. Just, it makes you sick. It was determined that she was assaulted and murdered elsewhere. This is what they were thinking at the time. As very little blood was found at the scene. So from January 2nd to 4th, police took propane heaters to the body site, as they called it, to melt the snow in order to search for more evidence. They, they, it doesn't surprise me, though. It's Durham Regional Police. They're pieces of shit. Yeah. Um, They're too busy stealing dope from teenagers. And booze and shit. So they found a lighter, nails, and a small set of bones that included a rib and a vertebra. These were sent for analysis. Residents who lived in the area were questioned. Lydia Robertson and her son Alex had heard a female scream, quote, help, help, please don't, unquote. On the oh, night... that's, that's nice to brush off. Yeah, on the night in question. But they figured it was just a man beating his wife, so they paid it no mind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what the fuck, right? What? It's just a guy beating his wife, it's fine. Two other residents also heard the screaming, too, but they, too, didn't bother to investigate. See, there's too much of this, oh, I don't want to get involved, bullshit. No, man, get involved. Like, if I hear a woman... Even if you don't go there, call the fucking cops. If I hear a woman screaming, I'm figuring out what it is. Yeah, right, exactly, or a kid, or... Like, when we thought we heard screaming out back here that one time, we were investigating it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So the Jessup case was given to Bernie Fitzpatrick and John Shepard, both detectives with Durham Regional Police. 
They did, bleh, hello. They did look into one suspect. He was put under surveillance. His house was searched. They found nothing on both counts. He volunteered to take a polygraph test. He passed and was no longer a suspect. Who was this guy? Doesn't say. Couldn't find anything about him. Okay. Christine Jessup was laid to rest on January 7th, 1985 in Queensville. At least she was laid to rest in the same cemetery where she played. So that's kind of good. I'm thinking about that father who was in jail at the time. Oh, Bob? Yeah. Bob Jessup? Yeah, and even though it's probably not true because he'd be working or something, he's probably thinking, if I had been out, I I yeah. could have saved her. You know, yeah. he probably went through some, so much guilt. Some fucking hardship in his mind, yeah. man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because it's, it's the worst like that for men because men are uh, historically the protectors of the family. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah. So she was laid to rest in Queensville. Poor little girl. Rest in peace, Christine. Later at the reception in the Jessup home, several people claimed they heard someone outside scream, quote, God help me, unquote. At first, Janet denied hearing it. Remember that. The cops had hundreds of tips, but all came to nothing. The detectives interviewed the Jessops a few more times, hoping to trigger something. Janet now said her and Kenny probably got home between 4.20 and 4.35. Then, on February 14, 1985, Janet said in passing to the cops, quote, Guy Paul Morin, weird type guy, unquote. This is when the tunnel vision kicked in, in my opinion. Though they could find no real evidence over the next few days, Moran was now known as the suspect. Now, a little bit on Guy Paul Moran. He was a 25-year-old man who some considered odd because he played the clarinet instead of hockey. He worked on cars instead of partying, and he kept beehives behind his house, which today, I mean, he'd be a hero for that, keeping beehives behind the house. Yeah. For work, he was a sander at a furniture company in Toronto. So the two detectives went to Moran's house and questioned him in their car. Little did Moran know that they had a recorder hidden inside the car. I don't know if you're allowed to do that. Are you allowed to do that? You're not now, I don't believe. Not in the car. You'd have to be at the actual station. Right? That's what I thought. You have to say... And then you have to... Like, you have to I'm, say this is being recorded. This. Exactly, right? Yeah. Because um, that, I think they even have signs up, don't they? Like from watching, like oh, in the states anyway, from watching like Forty Eight Hours. And well, without permission, stuff it, like that, it's uh, you can't use it in court. The wow, really? Eh? I'm pretty sure. We should, if anybody knows like the Canadian laws, like this kind of shit, or you want to look it up for me because I just did a shit ton of research and I really don't want anything to do with the computer. Yeah, uh, go to. Um, any crime at all podcast on Twitter or Facebook and please let us know. So yeah, so they went to his house and there was a hidden recorder in the car. So Moran didn't say anything incriminating on the tape, but when it stopped recording, the detectives claimed he said, quote, all little girls are sweet and beautiful, but they grow up corrupt, unquote. Moran told them he'd never really talked to Christine. 
I mean, I thought about that afterwards, and I'm like, why would he? Yeah, he's... He's 24, she's 9. Um, what is she... You said 24 and 25. What is he? Oh, uh, 25. Sorry, 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 sorry. Okay. No, he was 24 at the time, yeah. So I did a typo here. He was 24 at the time. I'm so sorry okay. for that. He's 24. Um, yeah, so uh, he said he never really talked to Christine. Uh, they asked him, and he said no. He'd never really given her any hugs or anything. And they asked him, and he said no. He'd never played his clarinet for her. <clears throat> Pardon me. He said he got home around 4.30 the day she disappeared. Around 4.30. I mean, like, he couldn't be... Yeah. No one really... Oh, I'm home at 4.37, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Who does that? Yeah, exactly. Um... Yeah, so when Moran and his dad saw all the cops at the Jessups that night, Guy Paul remarked, quote, I bet that little Christine is gone, unquote. That's what Moran told them. And I mean, if if you see that many cops around, you're going to go to something of that extreme. Yeah. You know, somebody was murdered, somebody's kidnapped. It's going to be something like that. Who did he say that to his father? He said that to his father that the night it happened, yeah. And he told the detectives, if necessary, he would take a polygraph test. Like, no problem. Fitzpatrick and Shepard got Moran's time card from his work, and it showed he clocked out at 3.32 p.m. Now, they clocked the trip from there, Toronto, to Moran's house, and it took them 42 minutes. That meant he would have been home at around 4.14 okay. p.m. Okay, they clocked it at that exact time of day? Yeah. Okay, because getting out of Toronto at certain times of day are very different times. Yeah. And certain days. Certain days, as well. yeah. So You can't really rely on that. Sometimes it'll take 40 minutes, sometimes it'll take an hour and a half. Yeah, I mean, there could be an accident. Yeah. You know, it's the 401, man. Like, I'm, I'm, I assume. No, that wouldn't be the 401 they'd be taking, would it? No, I don't think so. Because that's east to west, right? And they're going north. Well, it doesn't matter. Getting out of um, there in any, yeah. In any form is hard. True. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Janet told police she got home around 4 35 p.m. Okay. This keeps going forward and forward. This is the second time it's changed. Exactly. Does she have something to do with this? This is because Kenny had been at the dentist, and they said he was picked up between 4.20 and 4.30 p.m. Okay. okay. Now, Stephanie Nisnik, remember this name too, an analyst at CFS determined the hair found on Jessup did not belong to the little girl. Soil on her shoes was consistent with the soil where her body was found, which means she walked where she was found. Okay. Three small plastic chips were found and sent to the chemistry unit, but they had since disappeared. Mm-hmm. Horrible work, man. The detectives asked for help from John Douglas, a personal hero of mine, thank you very much, a very well-known FBI profiler, one of the pioneers of that particular science. His profile... Went like this. I'm going to read it to you verbatim from this beautiful, beautiful book. The profile Douglas produced didn't clearly match the detective's key suspect, Moran. According to Douglas, the frenzied nature of the stab wounds suggested that the killer was either a woman or a man drunk or on drugs. 
It was likely, Douglas concluded, that the kidnapper hadn't intended to kill Jessup, but had stabbed her because Jessup grew uncooperative. The killer likely would have been splattered in blood and would have had to clean up afterwards. His or her behavior after the crime would have been very stiff and nervous. The killer was likely in his or her late teens or early twenties and lived a, quote, lifetime of failure and battered self-perception, unquote. He or she possibly had a visible handicap and might have had a criminal record for charges such as arson, breaking and entering, and voyeurism. Jessup, Douglas theorized, had probably been excited about her new recorder and with no one home when she got back from school went looking for someone to show it to. At the time, the suspect was probably in a stressed and agitated state. He or she likely had a job involving manual labor and preferred working night shifts. Douglas suggested that the detectives should use the press to help drive the killer out into the open. They should give interviews to the media, talk about new policing and investigative techniques that they were using, and emphasize that they would never give up. When they arrested a suspect, they should decorate the interrogation room with posters, evidence, and other props to give the impression they had established some sort of Christine Jessup task force. They did this with Bernardo. During questioning, they should act sympathetic and tell the suspect that Jessup had been wrong to seduce or lead the suspect on. Just to, you know. Okay. Early, late teens, early 20s. Remember, profiling is still... It's pretty new then. It's still yeah. pretty new in 84, so... Um, on March 14th, 1985, Global Television showed a news program entirely dedicated to finding the killer of Christine Jessup. New tips poured in as a, as a result, but the police felt like they had their killer, so they followed them up haphazardly. Gotta love that tunnel vision, eh? Yeah. On April 10th, 1985, Constable Ann Crawford went to Moran's band practice, undercover, posing as a student of aesthetics. She asked everyone for a hair sa sample, but only kept Guy Paul Moran's hair. Nisnik found that Moran's hair was consistent with the hair found on the necklace. The detectives got a search warrant for Moran's car and used adhesive tapes, you know, the tapes that they use. Yeah. Um, to get fiber and trace samples. Nisnik told detectives she'd matched fibers from Jessup to ones found in Moran's car. On April 23rd, 1985, Guy Paul Moran was arrested on his way to band practice, and the detectives got a search warrant for his home and another one for his car. Moran was taken to the Whitby police station... <laughs> I had no idea it was so close to home at the time, you know? And put into an interrogation room with quote-unquote evidence as Douglas had instructed. Moran, however, was not cowed. He willingly gave hair and saliva samples, and he handed over the small knife that he always had on him. Which I don't blame him, he worked in fucking Toronto. Yeah. Um, he would not admit to anything while being questioned, however. Nothing incriminating was found at the Moran house. Three drops of blood were found in his car, but they were too small to test. Three hairs that was believed to be Christine Jessup's. The RCMP crime lab said the necklace hair was 4,500 times more likely to be Moran's. However, 
Everything they had was circumstantial evidence. Yeah, it sounds like it. A policeman was sent into the jail undercover as a prisoner and placed in Moran's cell to try to get a confession out of their suspect. But this never happened. When the cop asked Guy Paul what he did when he was frustrated, Moran replied, I just read rum the innocent. That's my cure. You know, man, like you, unquote. Moran explained to his cellmate that this was in reference to The Shining, his favorite movie, Red Rum, right? Yeah. Moran also stated about Jessup, quote, no one knows the real relationship we had, unquote. The Crown was content with these two statements, and the cop was relieved of his duties. He also said he was scared for his life after the Red Rum statement. It's quite the cop, eh? Yeah. Are you scared of your own shadow? Um, now, one time, Janet, Bob, and Ken Jessup went to the site where Christine's body had been found. While there, they found a pile of bones that would eventually be found to be human remains. Moran's defense team would not know about them for years. So after the preliminary hearing, the Morans hired Clayton Ruby to represent their son. A man named Robert Dean May was put in Moran's cell. He was in for fraud and check forgery. And then another guy who, even to this day, is only identified as Mr. X, was in the next cell. He was in for assaulting two kids and an elderly woman. Real good guy. Yeah. On July 1st, 1985, they requested a meeting with the detectives in charge of the Jessup case. Detective Shepard and Detective Doug King met with them, and the two inmates told the detectives that Mor Moran had broken down and confessed everything the night before. May was brought back to a cell wearing a wire where he attempted to get Moran to talk about that day. Moran said he got off work, stopped to get lottery tickets, stopped at three grocery stores looking for something in particular, I assume, and stopped to get gas. Then he went home. In exchange for this information, the detectives assured the two criminals they would, quote, see what they could do about the men's sentences, yeah. end quote. Of course, like, that happens all the time. So much. They're so like, much. hey, maybe we can get this cut or... Yeah. 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 It's awful. Like, they're all scumbags. How can you trust them? Right? <laughs> and every time they get on the stand, too, like, the defense attorney is always like, uh, yeah, you did this and this and this, and you lied this time and this time and this time. Why should anybody trust you? Yeah. So they're always... It's always shit. Now, on to the physical evidence and the testing procedures at CFS. Soil found in Moran's car did not match soil that was found on Christine Jessup's body. Police had obtained 150 hair samples from people, mostly school children that went to school with Christine, to compare with the necklace hair. Not one had been analyzed. Nisnik had found red animal fibers, like wool, on several of the samples from Jessup, but none from the car. Turns out, one lab technician wore red wool sweaters to work and refused to wear a lab coat. What, what, what kind of a... What kind of a lab is this, first of all? Then fire him if he refuses to wear a lab coat. <sighs> also, very few of the fibers from Jessup's clothing matched anything found in Moran's car. The ones that did match, though, the lab just couldn't figure out the source from whence they came. But... I did read in some research that 
the Jessups and the Moraz use the same um, laundromat, and fibers can be transferred that way. Okay, okay. Now, a couple of cops decided to play scientists themselves. Oh, okay, that's smart. Yeah. They were attempting to figure out if the three residents that lived near the body site could actually have heard screams. So one officer brought his daughter to the site, then he proceeded up to the houses, and when she screamed, he claimed he could barely hear her. Of course, it was rush hour at the time, and on, and on October 3rd, 1984, it had been later. Yeah. It was like the evening or something, right? Yeah. Late evening? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Guy Paul Morin agreed to be examined by two psychologists. This was requested by his defense attorney. Um, both said that he had some form of schizophrenia and that he may have been delusional and murdered Jessup without even knowing it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently he was schizophrenic and he didn't know it and apparently there were no signs ever, but yeah, he was schizophrenic and he may have been delusional and may have killed a little girl and didn't even know it. I mean, even Richard Chase knew that he killed people. Yeah. <laughs> this is like such a stupid fucking handling of a case, man. Like, Oh God. Oh my God. They're such bumbling idiots. So many police stories piss me off. Oh. Like, uh, what's his face? Uh, the Yorkshire Ripper, was it? Yeah. That documentary? Yeah. On Netflix? Yeah, they were horrible. Um, yeah. If anybody, if, if you haven't seen that documentary about the Yorkshire Ripper on Netflix, you need to watch it. It's so good. Um, so, we're going to stop there. And uh, on Thursday, we will release part two, because if we keep going with this, it's going to be probably close to two hours. Yeah. And I mean, I love you guys and I hope you guys love us, but I don't want you to get bored of listening to it. No. So we'll do it in two. We were going to do it in one part, but we'll do it in two parts just so it's not so tedious. Yeah. Especially with all this information, how fucking much it pisses me, if, if it pisses me off that much, someone else must be pissed. Listen. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no doubt. So. And uh, trust me, it's uh, you're going to have a lot more comments in part two. Yeah, that's why uh, I think it would be too long. <laughs> because uh, uh, I'm telling you right now, and I'm not giving anything away because you guys know what the cops are like already. It doesn't get any better <laughs> with them. So, yeah. That's not surprising. Yeah, no doubt, eh? Okay, so that was part one. As I said... Thursday, we will release part two. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Like, thank you guys so, so much. Um, I know I already called out my friend Michelle, but I have to, have to, have to call out my friend, uh, well, my sister, Caitlin, because she's such a huge support. Who was a previous guest on the podcast. And she will be again. Um, and my other sister from another Mr. Hannah, because she's just a big support too. And my friend Chris, who listens diligently all the time. He's a big support. Do you have, like, I know your friends are part of the, our group. Do they listen? I don't know. Maybe talk to them? 
I'll try. I, I, I don't really talk to anybody, so. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, somebody, somebody other than the few people that I mentioned are listening because we're getting more listens than that. So, thank you to everyone who listens. And we absolutely adore you. And uh, until Thursday, my beautiful, beautiful freaks, this is Stacy signing off. Do you want to sign off too? Peace out. Peace out, bros. Love you. Bye.